Well, hey everybody, hopefully you're well. We're back at it. Here we are, week three of our series called Faith for Exiles, as we're engaging this book, Faith for Exiles, and the ideas within it, and also what this means and what we see in scripture as far as being faithful and resilient disciples in our time, in our moment here in Canada. Again, hope you're doing great. We're just so thrilled that you've hit play and are joining us as well. To everybody who listens to the podcast, welcome. We're just so thankful you're listening with us. If you have a Bible and you want to join me, why don't you open up with me to Mark chapter 3. That's where we're going to start today, Mark chapter 3. And this is what it says of Jesus in verse 13. It says this, Mark 3, 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, and listen to what it says, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. One of the things that has been central at Praxis over the years is this core value of life with God. Ultimately, before anything that we do, Jesus wants us to do life with him, to live life with him. It's interesting here with these disciples, he calls them out and there's 12. And obviously, if you're an Old Testament, you have the Old Testament in your framework, you begin to see that those 12 are really the representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's significance here, but he calls them out to be with him. And in the hustle and bustle of our world, and even in kind of pop Christianity, where things are fast and moving all the time, it's, it sometimes gets by us that Jesus wants to be with you and I. That apprenticeship to Jesus is about being with Jesus, you see it right here, and then going out and doing what he did. That as apprentices, we're called to be with Jesus and to go and get on and do the things that Jesus did within the world. This has been fundamental to who we are, and it's interesting that the first practice of resilient discipleship that's uncovered in the book that we've been reading is all about forming a resilient identity and experiencing intimacy with Jesus. Forming a resilient identity, knowing who we are, and experiencing intimacy, being with Jesus. The very call, as Jesus calls out his disciples, is the thing that actually has shown in the research is the thing that makes resilient disciples. You know, we live in a culture right now where you can say certain things, especially around Christianity and following Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you mean it. You know, most Americans, and it says this in the book, say that they're Christians, but few follow that up with deep, heart-level, life-directing commitments. We can say things. You know, this, this stood out to me a few years ago. I was watching the Grammys of all things. I hardly ever watch award shows, but one evening I was watching the Grammys when it was on and somebody had won an award and they got up and of course the first thing out of their mouth was, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, this whole, I want to, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ for this award, it's so good. You know, it was interesting though, because the video, the music video and song that this person won for was full of all sorts of stuff. Sex and money and power. I, I think if I can get it in my head, I, I turned the video one time, the music video as I was watching it, but um, I think it had like a money pit in the back and all sorts of idolatry and power dynamics. And not only that, when this person got up to give thanks to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there was all sorts of like half-naked bodies on the back wall. And it just showed that you can say something 
but what actually we mean as disciples with Jesus flows out of our lives. You know, about two out of three 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S., they say they're Christians. Two-thirds say that they're followers of Jesus. And it's easy for young adults to call themselves Christians, but it's much less common. And we've seen through the research in this book, and I would say I've seen as a pastor, however, that young Christians, they can call themselves Christians, but often fail to experience or find their identity in Jesus. And again, that's not a judgment thing. That's just actually what some of this research has showed us. Now, let's throw up a table here just to show you how it's easy to say you're a Christian, but less common to find joy in Jesus. This is one of the key points from this principle and this chapter in the book, is that it's easy to say you're a Christian, but it's less common to find joy in Jesus. You can see here that three out of the four groups of exiles actually identify themselves as Christians. So prodigals obviously don't, but nomads, habitual churchgoers, and resilient disciples do. There's also the question of which of the following phrases best fits how you would describe your faith to others. And it's interesting that the higher percentage of a response like a follower of Jesus or a Christian is experienced by resilient disciples, 97% as a follower of Jesus or a Christian at 95%. Then some of the study got even deeper to the centrality of Christ. And the thing that you'll see here is actually that the the higher somebody strongly agrees with these particular statements, the more they are to be a resilient disciple. Things like, I believe living in a relationship with Jesus is the only way to find fulfillment in life. Or my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction. Again, you go from nomads at 25% to habitual uh, churchgoers at 48%, but 90% of uh, resilient disciples say that my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction. Or other things like following Jesus shapes my entire life, body, mind, heart, and soul. 24% nomads, 51% habitual churchgoers, and then 88% of resilient disciples. The point in all of this, and the point to show you this, again, is that it's easy to call oneself a Christian, but it's much less common to find joy in the person and work of Jesus. One of the things that Kinnaman and Matlock say in the book is that the first practice of resilient discipleship in Digital Babylon is learning to remove religious clutter to experience intimacy with Jesus. To remove religious clutter and get down to it in this relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. Here's another table. I know it's statistics and stuff. We'll get to some reflection for us in a minute, but I just think it's interesting. Look at this table. As these groups, these groups of exiles responded to questions about experiencing intimacy with God. It's interesting that the percentage gets higher as it goes from prodigals to nomads to, again, habitual churchgoers to resilient disciples. Statements like this, worship is a lifestyle, not just an event. of resilient disciples respond that this is true, that they strongly agree, or that Jesus has deeply transformed my life. Again, going from prodigals all the way up, it gets stronger and stronger, to reading the Bible makes me feel closer to God, to Jesus understands what my life is like these days. You sense that this relationship and intimacy with Jesus is the thing that is central in a resilient disciple. Or what about things like prayer? There's questions that were centered kind of around prayer and talking with Jesus. You can see here, again, the same thing. The stronger the percentage it goes towards being a resilient disciple. 
Questions like this, I'm re-energized when I spend time with Jesus, or Jesus speaks to me in a way that is relevant to my life, or listening to God is a big part of my prayer life. Again, 78% of resilient disciples would affirm and strongly agree with this. And so the authors of the book would point out a couple things from these couple of tables. First, resilient disciples express a feeling of intimacy with God that is actually lacking in the experience of the three other groups of exiles, habitual churchgoers, nomads, and prodigals. That there's this intimacy with Jesus is a foundational part of a resilient disciple's life. And second, resilient disciples experience conversational intimacy with Jesus, which simply means that a, a large part of resiliency and following Jesus with your life is about prayer. And we're gonna get into this in a couple minutes and talk a little bit about prayer. You know, the church has responded to the identity pressures of our culture by offering young people a Jesus brand experience. This is what the authors would say. Rather than facilitating a transformational experience to find their identity in the person and work of Jesus. And ultimately, one of the things we have to wrestle through is where is our identity found? You know, digital Babylon all around us, flickering pixels all around us, brands, there's algorithms now that draw our attention. Heather and I were just joking the other day, we said something in our home, just had a conversation, I think it was around the dinner table, we had a computer close by, I don't know what's going on, who's listening, but legit what we were talking about was then in my Facebook feed as an ad. There's so many images and things that are trying to pull our attention. There's people that literally give their lives to kind of seduce us with branding. And in this age where there's so much coming at us, a foundation of, of who we are and what our identity is and who we are as people is so important. You know, there's an Old Testament example of this that we've actually looked at in the life of our church before that is really a case study for living faithful in exile. And how intimacy with God and these patterns and rhythms shaped their lives even when they were kind of pressured to do otherwise. Obviously, this example is the example of Daniel. Daniel was a young Hebrew when his people were uprooted from their homeland and he was made to serve a powerful new kingdom in Babylon, that same kingdom we had talked about earlier on in the series. Most of what we know about Daniel and the supporting actors in his story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, arises actually from their resilience in the face of pressure to conform. They dared to stand up to the powers of the empire for the sake of Yahweh, their God. Yet we often miss the subtle realities. You know, we can just read by a little bit. We miss the subtle realities at the heart of their story. You know, as modern readers, we underestimate the indoctrinating power of Babylon and what it yielded. One of the things that I talked about a couple weeks ago is that when Babylon came in and Nebuchadnezzar came in to Jerusalem and took out the city and killed a bunch of people, he took the brightest and most beautiful people in Jewish culture and was trying to take them back and immerse them within Babylonian culture. The ultimate goal was to brainwash these people and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were actually a part of these people. It's interesting if you read it, we don't have time to read it today, but in chapter one of Daniel's story, we learn that these young men were taught the language and the literature of Babylon for three years. There's the brainwashing right there. You're gonna learn everything about our culture, our language, and our literature. And they were assigned their names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were assigned their names based on the identities of Babylonian gods and goddesses. 
And in the ancient world, your name meant something. So they were now named after Babylonian gods. They were asked to form their taste in the manner of the rich and decadent diets provided by the royal house in which they were serving. So these were some of the actual tools that Babylon used in the effort to turn these young Hebrew men who had gone into exile into Babylonian men. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. These were his tactics. Daniel and his peers, instead of ingratiating themselves into the indoctrinating systems of their captors, waited on God, and you know this about Daniel if you read the story, they listened for his voice and became a conduit to express his power. And you know that Daniel didn't end up in a lion's den uh, just by accident. There was rhythms and practices in his life as his life was yielded and attentive to God that got him in trouble. You know, throughout the story of Daniel, we read about young exiles who allowed their habits of devotion to God to actually to, to define them, to be their identity. And those habits made all the difference in their resilience. And I think we're at a key moment in history and in our country to understand that we have to be looking and peering into the things that are building our identity. Is our identity formed on Jesus? Or is it informed on the things in digital Babylon that are coming our way? One of the things that the authors do that I thought was really beautiful, and I just want to highlight it and touch on it a little bit here, is they, through their research, began to uncover a number of ways in which a resilient identity can be nurtured as Christian disciples. So basically, they look at six different things that nurture our, our identity. These are proven things in some of the research and response that they got back from 18 to 29 year olds. But I actually think that these things apply. If we want to build our identity on the foundation of Jesus, here are some things that are actually working in other people's lives. One, experiencing Jesus together. Interesting that the response from people is that experiencing Jesus is found along a relational pathway with family and friends and people who love and experience Jesus. And we're going to get into this more when we talk about friendship and having formative friends in our lives. That's actually a principle. But one of the things that helps build our identity is experiencing Jesus together. I love what they said. They said, we are loved into loving Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's the story of my life. I was somebody who was nurtured and loved into loving Jesus. They asked the question, how can we become households of faith that move beyond habitual church going into engaged discipleship? I think a beautiful question. So the first thing that builds resilient identity is experiencing Jesus in community together. Two, they talk about nurturing our identity by being navigated by the true north of Jesus. In this, they talk about, and we talk a lot about this, about the importance of the Gospels, getting to the true Jesus. You know, all sorts of people have all sorts of, of opinions of who Jesus is, but oftentimes I'll ask people, have you like read the Gospels? This is why we engaged in this practice earlier on this year, is because the true north is found in the writings and the teachings of Jesus. I, I really encourage, and I say this to a lot of people, I really encourage all of us at least once a year to read through the Gospels together because what it does is it builds our identity on Jesus. Three, they talk about fearlessly asking the big questions of life and finding answers in Jesus. This is what it means to nurture our identity. 
They go on and say the entire process begins by creating space where fellow Christians feel they have permission to ask the big questions. My goodness, if there's anything we're trying to cultivate here at Praxis is an openness to asking big questions. You know, I'm trying to do this in my family with the way of Jesus, giving my kids opportunity. And so in this section, they actually reflect on questions that we can be asking, questions on, a, on identity, questions like, who am I really? Or where do I find my truest self? The reality is we are children of God. We're adopted into his family through Jesus. What the scriptures say about us is the truest thing about us. Or what about questions about how to live? Like questions like this, how should I live in today's world? Do my choices really matter? Well, the reality is, is the Holy Spirit willingly and cheerfully gives wisdom and discernment to those who ask for it. Following Jesus redefines the search of how to live. Or what about questions about intimacy and relationships? Things like, and I know this is questions we, these are questions we ask. Am I loved? Who are my friends? Does anyone care about me? The reality is, as part of the community of Jesus, we bear one another's burdens and experience love and intimacy together. Questions of meaning and purpose. Does my life matter? Am I made for something? The hope is, is that the Creator made us in His image to love Him, other people, and creation, especially through our gifts and our work. Or questions about legacy and significance. Can I make a difference? What really matters? What counts for a life well lived? The reality is, is that since reality is both physical and spiritual, and Jesus has been given authority over all things, we participate with him as restorers of both physical and spiritual dimensions of life, doing good to and in the world and blessing others. We live this holistic life. We are called to leave a legacy and a difference. And so one of the ways to nurture this identity is to fearlessly ask questions. And the hope is, is that those answers are found in the person and work of Jesus. Number four in nurturing uh, a, an identity in Jesus, they talk about not rushing to make a decision to follow Jesus. It was interesting in some of the research that the average age for making a decision to follow Jesus is eight for prodigals and nomads. So prodigals, again, people who do not follow Jesus at all. Nomads are the ones who kind of believe but don't really belong or are a part of community. It's interesting. Okay, so for the average age for making a decision to follow Jesus is eight for prodigals and nomads, nine for habitual churchgoers, but 11 for resilient disciples. And they're just wondering, did we find something here? Because it appears that resilient disciples are more likely to make a decision to follow Jesus when they know what they're signing up for. Part of our identity shaping is making a slow decision to follow Jesus, not rushing into it. We know that, uh, especially in the Western world, especially in attempts to, to get people to follow Jesus and to make a confession of faith, that there's often been pressure, and that's put pressure on people to do it quickly. But it's interesting that one thing that has been long-lasting in resilient disciples is that there's not this rush. I know that, you know, people would argue we're in urgent times, but we have to give people the opportunity to know what they're getting into. This is one of the things that has marked practice, praxis as a community. We want people to know what they're getting into. Five in nurturing a resilient identity is this, get close and stay close to Jesus. So putting patterns and rhythms in place to draw close to God, to be with him, and ultimately to stay close to him in the long run. And then six, number six, in building a resilient identity, I love this one, 
they've just found in their research that they would encourage people to go to church, but don't expect church going alone to bring intimacy with Jesus. You know, one of the things that's really dangerous in people's identity, when their identity solely becomes the church without any personal responsibility to cultivate their own spiritual life. And obviously our identity is the church, but be a, their encouragement is to be a part of a church, but don't expect church going alone to solve all of your problems and to be your identity. Because the reality is people will let you down. Look into the camera. I will let you down. And the tension is, is the church is a very serious thing. It becomes a family, but we also must be reminded that our identity cannot be rooted in each other. It must first and foremost be rooted in Jesus. And so these are six things that I would encourage all of us in our community to think through in rooting ourselves in Jesus and building this identity, this resilient identity. Because again, the thing that has risen to the top as far as practices and resilient disciples, the very first thing, again, is resilient identity and experiencing intimacy with Jesus. Now, with all that said and research and tables and charts and it's all good stuff, but I have a hunch that there's some of you, when we talk about intimacy with Jesus and conversation as being one of the key points of that, that a lot of us have a hard time praying. I get it. I totally get it. I mean, if I were, we were in a room together right now and I were simply to ask you or ask the room, how many of us are praying way too much? I know, I know there wouldn't be many hands up. And here's the thing. I'm a pastor, dude. I know my hand would not go up. A few years ago, I had this epiphany, actually, and it was really a confronting time in my life that I wasn't praying really at all. I would say things to people like, I pray without ceasing, you know, like Paul's instruction in the New Testament. I would always just tell people, how's your prayer life going? Oh, you know, I pray without ceasing as though this was like a, a regular thing in my life. It really did become a, an excuse. The problem was, is I could wax eloquently when I was called upon in front of people to pray, but deep inside me, I knew it was a little bit of a show. And for a number of years, actually, there was this internal conflict within me, and there was this struggle within me. And so during this time, in my searching, in kind of this internal conflict, I came across the reality that Jesus followers, from the beginning, have entered into something called fixed hour prayer. And I just want to take a minute and just talk about this as we close, because I think there's some of us that we struggle. We struggle to pray and we feel the guilt of that. But I'm telling you that I came across this thing a few years ago called fixed hour prayer. And I don't mean to oversell it. It has radically revolutionized my life. And again, I don't want to overstate that, but it's something that has changed me. Now, if you've been around the evangelical church a while and you've been around maybe your whole life, I get it. Some of you may think, and I, you know, I understand, the idea of praying at fixed hours can seem rigid and kind of out there. It kind of sounds not very relational, but again, I've just learned some things with this over time that have really shaped me. It's also something that people who have followed God from the very beginning. This is something they have done for a very long time. So a little while ago, I was reading Psalm 119 and it opens up, the psalmist says, seven times a day, I praise you. And I was like, what? Seven times, seven times a day? And what I began to realize is these people, the ancient Jewish people, had a rhythm in their life of praying and stopping seven times a day. 
this fixed hour. Some people have called it throughout history the daily office, but we don't necessarily know what ancient Jewish people were praying. I actually think it was probably the Shema, this great command in Deuteronomy 6 to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and pray. And uh, I think this was probably a forming thing for them. I'm not entirely sure. But what we do know is that this was part of the rhythm. And this is why Daniel got himself into a lion's den. I've already said it. He turned towards Jerusalem throughout the day and he defied all odds in Babylon and he prayed. But then I learned it's not just ancient Jewish people that were doing this. It was actually something the early church, I believe, did. The early church was formed, I believe, by fixed hour prayer. A lot of people know this uh, verse in Acts 2.42. You know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So this is after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the people and they devote themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. And you read that, but what's interesting here is that probably the better translation from Greek to English is not that they devoted themselves to prayer, but the better translation from Greek to English is that they devoted themselves to the prayers. And you may think, well, you're trying to sound smart using Greek stuff. Not at all. I just want to point out here that I believe they were devoted to the prayers, which means they had scripted prayers early on that they would pray together. You know, a long line of people in the early church entered into this thing of fixed hours, and a long line of church mothers and fathers have practiced fixed hour prayer throughout the ages. And I stumbled into this a few years ago, and it's just changed me. So, and I'm not part perfect, far from it, you know this, especially those that know me, but three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, my phone alerts me from an app called the Book of Common Prayer, which we've promoted before, and I read prayers that are written by other people from the past. And this may sound unspiritual and not very relational, but honestly, it is the most spiritual practice I have entered into. And I just think many of us, as we wrestle through intimacy with Jesus and cultivating that, I actually think it takes fixed hour and schedule. Many of us just take it for what it is through, as we drill down on this practice, need to pray common prayers. Oh, but I'm praying all the time. Maybe you think that you're saying that. Oh, I just, I pray, I pray without ceasing like Paul. Let's be honest. You probably don't. I love you. But really, like, do you? One of the things I've been saying around our community is this. We schedule the things we love. We do. And I think actually scheduling times in the daily office or for common prayer and fixed hour prayer is it needs to be a part of our schedule, and that doesn't make it any less spiritual. And so I just want to encourage you that this may be a practice that actually gets you going in working towards resiliency in your identity, because prayer forms and shapes your identity and builds intimacy with Jesus. I'll also say this. Not only is common fixed hour prayer beautiful and something that I think all of us should consider, but the other thing that I've just been engaging in when it comes to intimacy with Jesus is using the Lord's Prayer as foundation. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was onto something when he instructs us to pray. And, and when he instructs us in Matthew 6, he actually instructs us how. If you don't know, the Lord's Prayer is a culmination of a number of Jewish prayers that come together in the Gospels. And these are really the most recognizable words in human history. 
right? In our own country, kids used to go to school and they would open the day with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, these words are recognizable. And the danger with that is sometimes the more recognizable something becomes, it can kind of lose its power. And it's not that the words themselves the content uh, loses its power. It's just sometimes when we become familiar or so familiar with something, it can lose its power in our lives. And I think with the Lord's Prayer, I think that's been the thing. And yet it is the foundation in how we're guided to pray. And I think it could be the foundation of relationship with Jesus. Let me sum up the Lord's Prayer. Just listen to what you pray if you were to engage, like I've tried to the last little while, to engage in praying the Lord's Prayer every day. This is what you pray. You come to God as Father. You pray that as God is holy, we would be holy. You pray that God's will would be done in the here and now. You pray for a just society. You pray for forgiveness and the ability to forgive others. And you pray for the ability to resist evil. Could that be something that shapes our lives if it was something we entered into every day? Those are just two things I just wanted to leave with you outside of the content from this chapter. Because as we talk about intimacy with Jesus, some of us just need a starting point. And I'm telling you, rhythm and schedule is actually a beautiful thing. You do it with other things in your lives, and I would just encourage you to start here. Resilient disciples, the thing, the, the most important thing that defines them is a resilient identity and forming and shaping intimacy with Jesus. This is what it's all about. This whole thing is about life with God, and we want to invite you into life with God. Before you do anything, before you serve on a team at Praxis, or uh, go to a small group, or do all the things that we do, all that stuff is beautiful, but ultimately what we want for your life is to be with Jesus, be with him. So I'm going to pray for us, and at the end, as other weeks in this series, some questions are going to come up. We encourage you to wrestle through them, maybe on your own, or if maybe you're in a community right now, meeting on Zoom, or you're meeting with other people. Would you wrestle through these questions together? But before that, let me pray. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come to us wherever we are. You would shape our lives. I pray that we would be these people that are cultivating and developing our identity on you, Jesus, as King. And that no matter what we put our hands to as a church, no matter what we do, that we would never lose the reality that this is about being in relationship with you. So if this is baby steps for some that are listening and watching today, I just pray that those baby steps would be taken towards a full life in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace, guys. We love you. Can't wait to chat and be together next week. Have an amazing week.